This morning's reading is from Revelation 21, verse 1 to 5. I'll be reading from the NIV, and you can follow along either on the screens or from your Bibles in front of you. The word goes as follows. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out, down, down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So today we're going to look at one of our Christian foundational beliefs, which I believe has has, uh, kind of sometimes gotten lost a little bit in translation throughout the ages of uh, Christian history and the church history. Um, And so my title for today uh, is titled, Behold, He is Making All Things New. And it is... Uh, on, the, on the topic that is often understood as having to do with the future, the end times, judgment, heaven and hell. And the technical term for this is called eschatology. And so this will be the last time I'm going to use that, that technical term. All right. We're going to try and make it simple and understandable this morning. Uh, but it's often got to do with these, uh, these big things about the future, the end times, judgment, heaven and hell. And now, obviously, with in 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, I can't really cover all of those those topics in depth. So, uh, but you, uh, uh, my hope is that you will see how those things, through the grand narrative of Scripture, through the main storyline, the main story arc of Scripture, how those things are connected, and uh, um, yeah, and how this foundational idea of how God is making all things new. Is connected to that to those themes uh, and if you have any questions and you want to go into a little bit more depth with any of these things that I'll be saying this morning um, I'm more than happy to to chat with you after the service or even over a cup of coffee at some point but um, from the age of seven as you can see on the screen from the age of seven years old whenever I heard the phrase end times it would trigger trigger like visceral reactions within me it conjured up haunting images from the theology that I soaked up in the churches that I grew up in and since childhood I was told about this looming destruction that will come at the end and so my imagination was filled with images of war with Russia or China uh, where cities lay destitute and on fire constant warnings of impending doom with, with the new incarnations of the Antichrist during every American election or the new uh, in, uh, installation of a Pope. And this was quite fear-inducing for a seven-year-old uh, 
boy, <laughs> it's fear-inducing for an adult, but never mind a seven-year-old kid. Um, and, you know, one day, I think I was about seven or eight, I came home from school, and we lived right across from my school. And so I would walk home and, to school and back home after school every day. And so we lived um, in the small town in the free state. And if you know the free state, they get these persistent warm winds during, uh, I think it was August, during the dry month, you know, in the winter. And so you would get these persistent winds. And in the small town, we were surrounded by a bunch of farms. And so, and it's all red dirt, if you've ever been through the free state. And so it's really, it looks like on the screen there almost. And it's really like an apocalyptic scene where this like red dust is all over and it's eerie and it's, you know, it just, it just gives you the sort of gloomy, these gloomy sensations. And this one day I walked home from school in one of these apocalyptic scenes. You know, you walk home and you feel the sand on your teeth stick to your teeth and you try to keep your mouth closed and your eyes covered. Um, and I walked home and I got home. And as I entered into my house, I, you know, there was always someone, someone at home. My mom was a stay-at-home mom or my grandparents would be there, or there would be some of our help would be there. But this one day I got home and it was dark and quiet. And I was immediately petrified. I got so scared. <laughs> uh, I was paralyzed with fear, not because of that walk through that apocalyptic scene, but because it was such a rare thing to find home empty. I've never encountered it up until then. But on this day, I had this awful sense that my family must have been raptured away, <laughs> leaving me, this poor seven-year-old kid, alone. I remember sitting on the couch there crying, <laughs> like, please take me. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was quite a scene. Um, but as I started my theological training about 17 years later from then, I soon discovered that this kind of theology that caused me so much fear and so much uh, trepidation um, actually is quite a modern theological construct. This theology started by a man named John Nelson Darby. You can see him on the screen there. He, he was born um, at, in, eight, in the 1800s um, and he passed away in 1882. And then the second um, influential thing was the Schofield Reference Bible, which popularized these ideas very much through their study notes. And that was only published in 1909. And so that was actually the catalyst that kind of spread this theology within the U.S. And it was in the context of the Cold War with Russia and, 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 and with capitalism versus Marxism and all these sorts of things. And so this idea became so, uh, it became a viral ideology, a theology in the church. And then it got spread through the missionaries. And, and the reason I'm telling you this is that uh, this very influential understanding of the end times is less than 200 years old within the broader scope of 2,000 years of church history. So if you look at this little ruler on this timeline, that little ruler there, the timeline is the whole of church history. That little yellow ruler is about as much time that this theology occupies within church history. Um, and so... These ideas have only existed for roughly 10, 10, 
10 or so percent of church history. And if you look at this, uh, yeah, this yellow ruler, you see how long it took. Now, if what I said resonates deeply with some of your beliefs, um, then that's absolutely fine. I'm not here to wage war with you, but I, I would like to offer you to something a little bit different. And if you want to delve into some of these questions a bit more, I'm, again, I'm happy to grab a coffee or a chat after church. But I want to show you today is that the big picture of the Bible is better understood as the end time. Or rather, the redemptive storyline of the Bible, the redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation offers us and it invites us into a story, into a captivating and beautiful vision for this world. And how this vision doesn't lead us to a destructive end, but rather to an ever-growing and restorative vision where God is making all things new. And I believe that this story is calling us to participate in that story. Through, not through fear, but through the compelling and beautiful vision that it radiates. You know, I can stand up here and I can tell and I can use scare tactics to, use, to control people. I can come here and I can tell you about all sorts of things. Uh, that's what lots of churches do. But I believe the Bible invites us into a beautiful vision that speaks for itself. I don't have to stand here and whip you up in fear in order to control you. But I believe the Bible invites us into this beautiful restorative vision that's, that's compelling for in and of itself, and I can just lay it out there. Therefore, it is important to note that the end time is as much about now as it is about the future. And, it's actually, and it actually starts as far back as Genesis. And so from now on, I will stop using the word words end times and I will stop using the technical term eschatology uh, because I think it's better to understand and to talk about it as the unfolding redemptive story of the Bible where God is making all things new. So before we continue, before we go on this adventure, I want to take a moment to to share, I've told a couple of you that I'm, I'm going to share some news this morning. So this is your cue. Uh, if you look on the screen there, that guy there is, his name is Dr. Bart Goldman. He's on our council here at All Saints, and he's a very good gynecologist. Um, the lady behind him is my wife. <laughs> and in December, we found out that we are expecting another, a little one coming <laughs> uh, in July. And so we are excited to be inviting a new little All Center into our congregation. And when I heard I was preaching on the sermon uh, a, a while back, I realized that this is the perfect opportunity to announce to the church that we're expecting a new little baby coming soon. Um, because I think, uh, I th I one, uh, because I think that this experience of expecting a little one actually gives us such a great insight. It's such a beautiful metaphor for what God is doing in making all things new. Um, because the storyline, the main storyline of the Bible is very much like expecting a little baby. One of the most frustrating times in a pregnancy some of you would know, many of you would know, it's probably those first three months 
you, they say you don't, you're not supposed to be telling anybody and uh, your wife is feeling sick constantly and angry and hungry and, and, uh, and, you know, I don't know what to do <laughs> and I'm in between. Um, and, and, and so, but then you also don't see anything yet in those first three months. You don't, you can't feel the baby. You can't see any growth. Everything just feels like, you, but all you feel is like the, you know, like that sort of um, nausea and all those sorts of things of so fatigue and, but you know that there is something developing in there. Something is growing and you know that life is forming inside of you or in my wife. And even though you can't see it, there is an excitement. There is fear, but there's also hope. And this is exactly what the main storyline of the Bible is. We think, we, we know that there is this beautiful thing awaiting us, but, that, but we're not there yet. Right? So let's begin in the beginning with Genesis 1 and 2. So if you look on the screen, you see the green and the yellow there. Heaven and earth um, is God. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created it with this beautiful harmony. It was a space where humanity, animals and plants and God lived in perfect harmony. It's a, it, it was a beautiful, harmonious space that God created. But we all know there is a big but. Because the world we see is a far cry from that harmony, right? So my question, my follow-up question is, who created hell? Because in Genesis we read that God created heaven and earth. Who created hell? That's exactly what happened in Genesis 3. Humanity had rejected God and his loving order. And they introduced corruption, deceit, brokenness, jealousy, greed, and violence to God's beautiful creation. And if you look on the slide there um, in Genesis 3, what happened was in the event of this corruption entering, it is as if, and it is like heaven and hell being ripped, uh, heaven and earth being ripped apart from one another as hell has entered into our beautiful creation. And ever since then, earth has been marked with thorns and thistles, struggle and strife, division, sorrow, violence and death, the dwelling place of humanity marked by division, brokenness and pain. Now the big picture of the Bible is a story that starts in a garden and ends in a city, right? Starts in Genesis 1 in a garden and in Revelation it ends in a city. It's a story about how God is reuniting heaven and earth by ridding earth of the hell that we created for ourselves and for one another. So that this world become a sacred space again where humanity, creation, and divinity can once again live in this perfect harmony. Listen how, God, how Jesus commands us to pray. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth 
as it is in heaven. In this prayer, Jesus shows us that we need to daily pray for that kingdom to become a reality here again. For God's kingdom to once again be reunited with earth. For earth to be rid of the hells that we created. For earth to resemble the God's loving justice. For earth to be the kingdom of God. And this is why I selected this passage from Revelation 21 today. Because it is the answer to the Lord's Prayer. It is the answer to Jesus' prayer. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In the present tense, I am making everything new. In this passage, John gives us insight into where our hope lies. See, it's not in the destruction of this creation, of this earth. It's not about escaping earth, but rather a remarriage of heaven and earth. It's not afterlife insurance. One theologian says it like this, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world because God is making this world new again and heaven will once again be reunited to this world. How does God do this? Well, between heaven and earth, there is a tree that bears strange fruit. At the center of of it all is a tree where God was murdered. It is what the Old Testament builds up to, and it's what the New Testament looks back to. It is what, it's the place where all of humanity's sin leads up to before, uh, before the cross, and it's where all our sin points back to. All of it points back to the murder of God. You see, it is the singular point in history that connects these two worlds again. The cross is the wood between heaven and earth. It is the portal through which they will once again be united. And it is through communities who live the cross-shaped life that shows us a vision of the world that Jesus is making. If we live like Jesus lived, lives marked by immense sacrifice, even to the death not, uh, and not uh, retributing and of um, enacting violence on his enemies. If we live lives like that, we will change this world. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross to save us from God. This future um, fear that we hold on to. No, no. Jesus died on the cross to reveal God as Savior, saving us from ourselves. Saving us from the hells we create for ourselves and for one another. 
He reveals God as our Savior, saving us from our evil desires, from the things we conspire against one, other, one another, from the hells we create for ourselves and for one another. And He saves us for a mission to see a world made new. So that the church, not this building, the church as in you and me sitting in this room, standing here in front of you, that we could go out there and see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone. The new is here and he's speaking in as if it's almost realized already in completion. But what Paul is doing here is he's saying that when we find the forgiveness for our sin, then we automatically live for a different world. And he says it almost as if it's already here in God's renewed and restored world. He, he is so urgent about it, saying the old is gone, the new is here. Now, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I'm not perfect, right? Um, are you perfect? I don't, I don't know, maybe, but <laughs> I'm definitely not. Um, you know, you can just uh, cut me off in traffic and, and then uh, you'll find out. <laughs> and uh, so I hope if you're an All Saints member that you don't cut me off in traffic. <laughs> but uh, all jokes aside, so Paul is not saying that we are going to be perfect right after conversion. Or that the world around us was suddenly perfect after Jesus' resurrection. Now what Paul is saying here is that after Jesus resurrected from the dead, he defeated death. And he showed us what is to come. He shows us that the cross and the resurrection saves. And that God saves us for a mission. He shows us that the kingdom has in some way... Uh, arrived, but his kingdom is not fully here yet. In, in theology, we call this already not yet. The kingdom is here already, but it's not here in completion yet. He shows us that we live in this in-between reality, in this tension between the union of heaven and earth. It is like <clears throat> what my wife expecting. Uh, it's what she's experiencing. She's experiencing this baby being formed inside her, that they, uh, but we don't know what the sex is yet. There's this baby inside her, but we don't know the color of their eyes yet. We don't know their hopes and dreams yet. We don't know what's going to scare them, what's going to give them, inspire them. But we, we know that there's something there. And it's like this hope and this excitement and this expectation of what is to come. And this is what we are living in. We're living in this tension in, this, in, the, in the redemptive history of, of, of Jesus. We, we live in this tension. We're experiencing these birth pains of this beauty that is to come we are given this prophetic imagination to imagine god's beautiful creation and it's only through the cross and the cross-shaped living that we can imagine and in some mysterious way enact this beautiful union of these two worlds again so what does this mean for us as followers of jesus in search of his kingdom we accept the invitation into god's redemptive story We live in this in-between time of the cross and Jesus' return. But we live as if we are in that future world already. And in doing so, we live lives that are shaped by the cross. 
So we become a sacrificial people, a people who strive for peace in a violent world, people who have eyes to see a world that is to come. We become people who live for, for a world, who um, the world where heaven and earth is once again, once, once again entangled in that beautiful harmony. Therefore, the task of the church is to advocate for that world right now. Where we once again live with God and creation, with all humanity and animals in perfect harmony, where evil will be eradicated, where the dehumanization and the objectification of women and people be, will cease to be. Our spirituality will lead us to be formed by God, to love Him so much that we start seeing each other, not through our greedy and our lustful and our controlling and seeking power, for, uh, seeking power, not through those lenses, but the eyes of the divine, the eyes of God. So we see each other as image bearers of God, that we will treat each other the way God treats us, as people worthy to die for. As the, as the theologian Tim Mackey says, it, the guy from the Bible Project, the task of the church is to get the hell out of this world. <laughs> now, this is his cheeky way of saying that you and I, we are called to live for and to advocate for this future world right now. To try and see the hells that we create for ourselves and for each other to be ripped out of this creation. Getting the hell out of this world means getting the hells of apartheid out of here. The hells of poverty, the hells of homelessness, the hell of hunger, the hell of political corruption the hell of Nazi Germany, the hell we're seeing in Palestine right now, the hell we saw in Israel in October, the hell we see in Sudan, the hell we see in Ukraine, the hell we see in our businesses where, we, where profits are more important than people, the hell where our medical systems are only um, for the middle and upper classes. You see, this is the hell we create for one another and for ourselves. And I can go on with lists of things, but you can see how practical the sorts of living becomes and how each and every one has, has a role to play in that, in our small offices or in our living community, we, communities where we live. We don't participate in the evil dialogue where we conspire against each other, building up little factions here and there. No, our mission is to get the hell out of this world. You see, the church work is not only what I'm doing right here, right now, standing and preaching. Church work is our collective work out there. Church work is out, going out there and getting the hell out of this world. It is living in the spirit. It is living in the hope of that future world. It is living the embodiment of King Jesus in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities. Because that is how we will transform the world. We have to start with ourselves. If the story of the Bible was just a guide in how to escape this world, just about how I can be made right with God, then the faith becomes a very me-centered thing. It's not not that. You know, the faith is about getting right with God. There is a vertical expression of faith. But if we stop there, then we, we, we miss the point completely. Because God saves us for a mission. And like the cross, it has 
this. Our relationship with God should look like this. Should look like a cross. It has vertical. Uh, we made right with God so that we can be made right with one another. So that we can serve this world. So that we can rip the hell out of this world. And we point the world to that cross. Where Jesus saves us from our selfishness. From our greed. And from our dehumanization of one another and he redirects us to a mission to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven a world where god's dwelling place will once again be among us and where he will dwell with us where he where we will be his people and he will be our god where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things have passed away because he is making all things new this is the word of the lord let's pray